If you ask someone to describe what a satellite image looks like, they'll probably point you to Google Maps or pictures taken by astronauts. However, there's a totally different kind of data taken from satellites. Radar. These are incredibly powerful data sources, but at first glance are complicated to understand. So first of all, you have to abandon all your intuition when it comes to synthetic aperture radar, right? That's Ian Woodhouse. He's a professor of applied earth observation at the University of Edinburgh and one of the most knowledgeable people when it comes to understanding radar images. I think that definitely is what got me into it is because it is so, not because it's complicated, because it's, it's just because it's really quite clever. Traditionally, optical images are bound by weather conditions and turned useless by cloud covering up the world underneath. But radar images can see through clouds and even at night. And yet, who cares about the images? They're, that's the, you know, backscatter is the least exciting part of synthetic aperture radar. It's when you get into looking at the phase information. So in particular, if you can get multiple measurements or multiple images, that's where things really become amazing. Ian has written books about radar imagery, has been teaching remote sensing for years, so he was the perfect person to talk about synthetic aperture radar. Before we get started, this episode is sponsored by EOHub, a collaboration between Up42 and GeoAwesomeness. GeoAwesomeness has been a key pillar in the geospatial community for the past 11 years now. I've actually had the founders, Alex and Mutu, on the podcast before. They write articles, host online events, and when possible, organize in-person meetups. They also collect and contribute to podcasts and videos in the geospatial community. The EO Hub is a new section on their website that's dedicated to Earth observation and satellite imagery that they've built in order to showcase how this industry is changing our world. It's supported by Up42, a geospatial marketplace and platform. So if this sounds interesting, I encourage you to go take a look at it at geoawesomeness.com. I'll have a link in the show notes. I don't know if you're aware, I like starting all these conversations the, the same way. I ask the same question every single time to people I have on the podcast. I asked them how they would describe themselves. So I'm quite curious, how would you describe yourself? Uh, um, uh, probably somebody has too many ideas uh, and not enough time to implement them. <laughs> um, I'd love to introduce people and educate them on Earth observation. Partly because it's such a fascinating subject, but also because it's really useful and it's got lots of uh, value beyond what it currently has. Um, but yeah, that's probably me. Educator, ideas person. That's primarily what, what gets me up in the morning. So if you have a lot of ideas and you feel like you don't have enough time, I'm guessing prioritizing then becomes a big thing. And so why decide or end up in earth observation? Uh, I ended up in earth observation because <clears throat> I think as a, um, as a teenager, the Voyager spacecraft were flying around the solar system. And I think that just really fascinated me. And it was also just that process. I mean, astronomy is the ultimate remote sensing, right? Is that you get one pixel and you can tell the temperature of the star, how big it is, how fast it's rotating, what it's made of. And it's just all from the spectral properties of the radiation. And so that, that, that was always what got me into, um, the astronomy and astrophysics side. So when I went to university, I started off doing astrophysics. Um, and ironically at the time, this is a long time ago, is that when I said, you know, when are we going to do some planet stuff? And they said, basically, I know, astrophysics and astronomy, we don't look at planets, they're boring. Um, <laughs> it's completely flipped now. 
course, because they're all everything exciting in astronomy is about planets, okay. so exoplanets, so right. outside of the solar system. But that model, so it's um, uh, it, it was that planetary exploration and the detection of, you know, physical properties just using light, that got me interested in the, in that measurement process, and then, yeah, the looking back at Earth, you know, and the, the teenage boy who wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, it just kind of made sense to look back the way rather than out the way. Do you think if exoplanets were a thing that were studied back then, you would have just stayed on that? Or was it because of the planets that <sighs> yeah, you... Yeah, it's possible. It's quite possible. Yeah, who knows? Because so for context, it was stars, right? If just a... Well, star, you know, at the time, stars and galaxies, you know, that was the thing that you looked at in astronomy and astrophysics. Right. So... And that didn't interest you. You wanted the planets. Oh, it interested me. It was interesting, um, but I I think I was, uh, yeah, more interested in the kind of more tangible things like planets. So, let's put a, a bit of context. When are we talking about? When did you start getting into remote sensing? So flipping the the Crikey. observation. Uh, so I started university in nineteen eighty five. So it's early eighties. Okay. So What's... formative time of the space shuttle just starting to come into into action. Um, so me and a friend used to run away at lunchtime to go and see space shuttle launches right. from high school and come back late. And uh, and so yeah, I was I still had ambitions of some sort to be an astronaut. So that led me down the astronomy astrophysics route, and. It was really the remote sensing of Earth probably came about um, because I did a fourth year. So I finished doing physics. Um, I wasn't very good at astrophysics. That was part of the problem. But so I, when, I, when I finished doing my physics degree, one of the courses I did was an atmospheric physics course. Okay. And Professor Bob Harwood did a course on sounding the atmosphere from space. And that seemed incredibly cool, as a, both as a mathematical puzzle and a you know, interesting concept in terms of measuring concentrations of gases in the upper atmosphere that were tiny, you know, parts per million, parts per billion. So that, and I remember, I, I remember exactly the class actually and where I sat and which room it was in uh, at King's Buildings in Edinburgh. And I think it was at that moment that I thought, yeah, this is, this is what I'm going to do, is look at the earth instead. <laughs> so you remember that moment where pretty much like i remember i mean i remember you know of course memory is is always yeah flawed so if we went back in time and could actually see it i might go oh that's not how i remember it yeah but i do have a vision of of sitting in the class watching professor harwood you know write these equations up on the board and talk through the the, that process of measuring the atmosphere and interestingly in terms of my sort of career arc when i came back to do my phd at harriet watt university it was actually in a group that was collaborating with, with Bob Harwood and his team. Um, and, I, and I did my PhD on atmospheric sounding, so microwave limb sounding, which is why, why there's a lot of microwave limb sounding stuff in my, my book, because that's sort of taken out of my PhD thesis. Right. So we're in the 80s. Can you explain to me, can you kind of paint a picture of what remote sensing looks like back then? So what have you got? You've got Landsat, you've got, I think the, the shuttle imaging radar might have started by the time I'd finished my degree. It must have, um, they must have done the shuttle imaging radar. And there were textbooks in the library that were mostly, uh, on the one hand, looking at things like Landsat data and how you 
how do you correct it and all the standard things like classification and image bands and such like. Right. Um, at Edinburgh, there was more books that were to do with atmospheric sounding, weather forecasting, and stuff like that. And there was a book, I can't remember the name of it now, but it was, it was like this uh, directory of remote sensing or something that had been produced. Because, of course, in those days, the internet was barely anything at all. And I remember I actually wrote, I, I was finishing my degree in uh, Edinburgh and I was going to go and do my master's at Dundee. And at the end of that summer, I'd been working all summer, but I, um, myself and my then girlfriend, now wife, we, we did some traveling in North America. And so I thought, well, we're going through Washington, D.C. I'll see if I can visit NASA Goddard. And I looked through this dictionary, the dictionary, a directory, and I had um, uh, Vincent Salomonson, who was the, the head of Earth Observation or something at Goddard, with an actual address. So I sent him an actual physical letter um, to say, could I come and visit? And I got a very nice reply saying, yeah, please do drop in. That's really cool. And it's interesting for anybody listening, or I don't know if you've ever been to Goddard. But no, if I haven't you, yet. A visit to Goddard now, you have to, you know, it has to be planned weeks in advance. You have to give them all your passport details. The security is incredible. In those days, so that would be 1989, uh, basically turned up and they said, oh, we're only expecting you. Um, we didn't, because I had Karen with me. Oh, that's fine. You know, we'll yeah. just put you down. Then we just went in. <laughs> it was like the, the security was non-existent. Yeah. Um, but Vincent Solomonson wasn't there, but there was um, a guy called Wayne, Wayne Bandine, I think his name was. It's remarkable. I still remember this because he spent, must have been two hours with us showing us around Goddard and a uh, lot of stuff like the um, total ozone mapping mission data on the walls and stuff. So there's a lot of things like um, the ozone hole was was key around that time. So there was lots of, uh, data on that that was being measured. So that was a lot of the remote sensing side. Um, and then going to Dundee, they they were the main UK place to download all the AVHRR data. So Professor Cracknell at Dundee was quite famous for doing lots of stuff with AVHRR. So that's the advanced, very high resolution radiometer, which was on one of the NOAA or all of the NOAA satellites for a long time. So what do you see at Godar if you go there when when you saw there because you're you're talking oh, about it as if it's it's a pr probably pretty pivotal moment as well in in it was I'll tell you one thing it was it, it made me realize just why NASA is such an incredible organization the fact that they spent that somebody was willing to just spend that time with a you know a student because I expressed right. an interest in the subject and I don't know how you know how senior or not senior this person was that was showing me around but it was um the fact that anybody at all was just willing to spend that time. And they showed me, so the, what did we see? We saw uh, lots of stuff on the walls in terms of new data that was just coming out. Um, they showed us the, they had a mock-up of the, the uh, shuttle payload bay for astronaut training and stuff. So we got to right. see that. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things. And of course, those days, uh, you know, it wasn't a mobile, you didn't have a mobile phone, so I don't have lots of photographs of, of the visit. Um, not sure I've got any photographs. They might not have, they might have asked me not to photograph anything. Yeah. But it was, uh, it was certainly, it was, it was a key moment, I think for me. And also, uh, it's a, it's, well, I should make a big shout out for NASA because they were definitely instrumental in my, my path to, into my career. Right. Because in my early teenage years, I think I must've been about 12 years old. I literally wrote a letter. I wrote a letter that was just, dear NASA, please send me some stuff about space. <laughs> Ian, you know, with my address, and I sent it to NASA, Cape Canaveral, Florida, 
right? And then two months later, this great big, huge, fat orange envelope came through with a NASA logo on it. And then somebody had just gone around the visitor center and picked up all these information yeah. leaflets and fact sheets and some photographs and everything else, and they shoved it in an envelope and they sent it. And I thought, how incredible is that? You know, this is pre-internet. You know, and yeah. now you just go on the internet and you can get all the photographs and information you want. But it was... Um, but yeah, then I spent my entire teenage years doing that and finding all the, the different NASA centers that I could write to. So of course, I, I, I found out that all the planetary stuff, you go to JPL. So I'd, I'd write to JPL. <laughs> and when I eventually visited JPL, I went to the visitor center and I, I asked the person that was there and I said, well, it probably wasn't you, but thank you very much for you know, having this institution that, that is willing to sort of just spend a few moments sticking some stuff in an envelope and sending it back to me. I'm sure there are other people around the world that did that. But for me, it was, it was fairly significant in terms of, um, I guess it made me feel like it was, you know, it was very current and it was very welcoming and it was an industry that was exciting. Things yeah. were happening. And I think you mentioned now there's the internet and you can do that. I think there's something different about someone taking the time to mail you something, even because the internet is oh, yeah. more of a, it's a public vitrine, basically. It's a storefront that, that anybody goes. But this is different because someone saw your letter and decided to send something back. I think there's, especially when you're a kid, like, oh, someone cared and paid attention to the thing I did. That that, that matters a lot. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, it was uh, probably the most exciting times of my childhood was getting these orange envelopes through the door. So the kind of natural question from there is, is that what guided you or, or made you want to become an educator as well? Is to... Uh, my, um, I remember the moment I decided to become an, a, a lecturer. Okay. So... And that was during my master's course when I realized that people were coming to ask me. It was partly because the, some of the courses were very heavy on the physics and maths. And that course had lots of people from different backgrounds. So I think there was only two of us that came from, maybe three that came from a physics background. So when Shane Cloud was lecturing everybody about the, you know, the matrix algebra of polar metric SAR, it, for most people in the class, it was very much, and <laughs> uh, so there was a few of us that kind of knew the matrices and stuff and could help the, the rest of the class. And so they came to you? Uh, they might have come to the others as well, but the, the key thing is that I remember the, the um, helping my classmates and them getting it as, and, and I guess the, the, um, I got a big kick out of that. They seemed to get benefit out of the help I was giving them. And I think it was that moment I thought, actually, you know, I quite like the idea of the education side of things. Right. So, and it's in my, it's in my genetics anyway, because my grandfather was a physics and maths high school teacher. Right, right. My uncle on the other side of my family is, an art teacher or was an art teacher before you retired. Right. So the, I just want to make sure I understand. You said the process of explaining to other people helped you also understand. It's not just explaining it to someone else for, for their benefit. I mean, there is some of that, but it seems like the process also helped you understand better the things that you were working on. Uh, that's definitely the case. I'm not sure that's what inspired me to go into teaching. It was more just that sense that you know, if at any point when you start to realize, actually, you might be quite good at something, then of course you think, well, maybe I could do this more often. You know, if I'm quite good at it and I enjoy it, then, you know, why not make a career out of it? Um, some people never get that 
and other people will get that early. Some people will find it on multiple things. But for me, I certainly I remember during the master's course actually thinking, yeah, that's this is quite fun. I I could do this. Yeah, that's I mean, I'm glad you did because I learned a lot from you as well on that like kind of full circle aspect. Uh, not that long ago, just a few years ago, uh, you you put out a lot of things out there uh, for free. Basically, you have a lot of resources. I mean, there's the book that's that's not free, but there is a lot of resources that your name pops up a lot when someone looks up at SAR. And that's also something I want to get into. But I, I just want to kind of have a, a, a bit of that moment of just saying thank you for that, for all that uh, work. Maybe because it's not that visible, like you put stuff out there, you don't really know how people uh, receive it. But I worked in SAR for a little bit and there still isn't that many resources out there. Uh, so I want to get into the, the SAR aspect uh, later on. But some of the work that you've done to try to explain things in, in relatively simple words, bring examples like that has helped me personally uh, get that excitement as well about like, oh, all the, these things are things we can do with that. And it was not when I was 12, a little bit older, but that kind of sharing that spark a little bit, I think is, is incredibly uh, important. I'm quite thankful for that. Oh, well, you're welcome. Thank you for saying so. So that's why I'm even more excited to, to kind of be able to talk about it with you now. Certainly. I mean, a lot of the educational stuff I, I try to put out there for free because it's, you know, my, the, the tech, in terms of my academic job, the taxpayers and are, are paying for yeah. my time. Right. So. I, I take that it's much more of a common mentality in the in the US is that well taxpayers pay for it so taxpayers should get it. Um, universities generally don't don't aren't necessarily always in that same mindset. So um, the fact that I record my you know lectures and put them on YouTube rather than making them you know just within the university system, um, that's not necessarily the the um, accepted way of doing it. But it's something that's dear to your heart, it seems like. Well, that you've thought um, about. is it dear to my, well, it's dear to my heart that we get more people engaged uh, as much as possible. But I think education, you know, that's a, it's a very ingrained sort of Scottish mentality is that um, <laughs> higher education is a public good. It's, right. for, it's for everybody's benefit. Um, so that's why there's still a, a discrepancy between uh, Scotland and the rest of the UK insofar as if you're um, Scottish residents don't pay fees to go to university. Whereas the rest of the UK, they they pay fees to go to university, and that's that's definitely part of the sort of historic um, vision of higher education being a public good. It's for everybody's benefit. The idea is just for the benefit of the student to you know to make more money in their career. Um, I think Scotland still holds on to that concept that it's actually beneficial for everybody. One of the other questions I wanted to ask you as well is let, let's do. Dive deeper into the you know microwave remote sensing SAR all of that SAR so synthetic aperture radar just radar imaging in general is really complicated compared to optical imagery just uh you can simplify it by saying you put a camera up there you just take some few pictures most people get the idea and you can get started doing actual work with that basic understanding that it's just an image happens to be a little bit more complicated there's a little bit more than just red green blue but everybody most people have eyes and uh, are used to seeing things 
Radar is a completely other different beast. So how do you go about explaining that? Basically, like conveying that intuition to people when you have to first explain to them, to students, what the heck this thing is. Do you have a way of, of kind of walking people through it? Uh, yeah. So there isn't. So first of all, you have to abandon all your intuition when it comes to synthetic <laughs> aperture radar, right? Um, synthetic aperture radar, I think that definitely is what got me into it is because it is so, um, not because it's complicated, but complicated because it's, it's just because it's really quite clever. Um, and interestingly, actually, again, back to my undergraduate days, um, I, I got really into the optics side of things. So one of my projects, um, in fact, there's two, two projects that I did as an undergraduate, which are, which are relevant. One I did quite early on, which was to do with the birefringence of uh, materials. So the idea that the polarization of the waves is changed as a consequence of uh, light passing through a material, but it's it's proportional to the wavelength. So different polarizations are twisted more than others. Um, so depending on the wavelength, they get twisted more. Uh, and you can use that in the context of looking at stress on things like plastics. And so you, so what I've still got a picture somewhere of um, one of my under, I think it was like a second year project where I, uh, I, it was like a plastic protractor, and it was just put between two. Um, like in a vice, so that it got pressurized until eventually it would break. But at each point where we turned the vice, we took another photograph through the polarizers so that you could see all of these little, um, essentially fringes, look like fringes, of where the, the fracture is going to happen because the birefringence changes as the, as the plastic gets more and more stressed. So that was, that, that was my first foray into sort of the, the amazing wonders of polarimetry. Um, and then my final year project, which was in an optics uh, topic, was looking at holograms. And what we did, so one of the things that is amazing about holograms, um, so, you've seen, so you've seen a hologram, right? And you've, have you been to like a museum or something that's got big glass plate museum, um, holograms that are... Like a sideways uh, uh, glass and then they project it on it? Well, no, just, you know, if you go in Edinburgh, there's a, um, there's a place called the Camera Obscura. So it's an old Camera Obscura up a, a tower, but it's got a big museum of lots of other optical illusions and stuff. But okay. It's got a whole floor that's just holograms, right? So glass plate holograms, okay. three-dimensional dinosaurs and skeletons and various things that make it interesting as, as holograms. Um, and the challenge is that people always think of holograms as just a three-dimensional picture. But the but it's not. not okay. It's a, what it's doing is replicating the light field that was there when the object was uh, captured in the hologram. So how does it work? Well, you have what you have is a reference. You have a reference wave. So you use laser. So it's uh, it's a monochromatic source. You have a reference wave, and then you have the scattered wave that comes off the object, and it's the interference pattern that's recorded on the glass plate that when you re-illuminate that interference pattern, it, re it recreates the pattern of scattered light that was there for the object. So it's not intuitive, right? No. So it's, <laughs> but, but crazier than that, the, the way that you really can understand how crazy a hologram is, is that in the camera obscura in Edinburgh, there's a hologram of a microscope, right? And the microscope's got sticking out of the wall. It looks like it's coming out of the glass plate. And everybody goes past it because it's like, it's not a dinosaur or a skeleton. So it's just a microscope. It's not very interesting. But what people don't realize, and what, I don't know why there's not a big 
sign above it that says look down the microscope is that you can put your eye up against the eye, where the eyepiece is and as soon as your eye is just at the eyepiece your field of view is completely taken up by the view down the microscope and you're actually looking down the microscope at this the, I think it's an electronic chip or something that's on the, the plate and that's how you know it's, it's replicating the light field that was there it's not a three-dimensional right. picture and it's just the craziest thing ever when you do it right. and you go up and you look and you go what I can look down that microscope what that's crazy. And so that's what, and the, the relation to synthetic aperture radar is that synthetic aperture radar is, is, is to optical remote sensing as holograms are to sort of standard pictures, right? Or even 3D pictures, because 3D pictures are just two images from a slightly different angle. Whereas a hologram is, is based on the replication of the scattered light field. And the synthetic aperture radar is doing something much similar. And that's partly why it does all these crazy things that don't seem to make sense. Right. So what you're saying is there isn't really an intuitive way to understand. Well, the only intuitive way to get into it, well, there's no intuitive way, but the way to, that, that I, um, there's an experiment that, that people will often do as kids at high school um, if they're doing physics. But if they've not done physics at high school, they'll, they might not have done this. But you just have, to, you have two speakers generating a monochromatic signal. And you can get monochromatic signals easily now because you can get tuning fork apps on your phone and it just generates a, a monochromatic, so single frequency sound. And you generate that out the two speakers. And what happens is that it generates an interference pattern in the, in the room. And you can walk around the room and hear them peaks and troughs. Have you done that experiment? No, no, no. But I mean, I've seen in a lot of physics class that's done with water where like you see waves and not necessarily with sound so the waves they the uh a wave tank in terms of generating all those so again you can now get app, wave tank apps so i use them in my teaching as well where you can actually because the animation aspect of it and seeing things moving is really important in understanding synthetic aperture radar so seeing how all those interference patterns operate when you move scatters around and stuff yeah and you can do it in a wave tank on a overhead projector um is where i first saw it or you can just get a wave tank app. There's several ones you can get now to download. But, the, but to experience that interference pattern yourself by walking around and actually hearing where it's loud and then an area where it's quiet and get the students to walk around and, and go, oh yeah, I can, I can actually experience that interference pattern. It's not just something that's on a drawing. It's a real physical thing. And then what I try to do, in the, um, and that's the, what I try to do in the book, is, is bring that as the basis that once you start to understand that, it, what's causing that interference pattern everything else can be explained on the back of that so aperture synthesis can be explained on that speckle can be explained on that interferometric SAR can be explained on that um you just have to get to grips with those interference patterns and why they're created and once you get that not quite that everything follows after but it's but i think that's that's my approach to to giving that grounding that if you if you realize that everything is based on that general principle, a lot of the other topics can be explained using the same things, the same diagrams and the same analogies. And then it makes it a lot easier to then connect things together and go, okay, I get that. So of course, ultimately you have to ask my students whether it works <laughs> and whether they understand it or whether they're just nodding politely. Right. Is it that that helped you? Well, that's my, cause that's how, uh, for me, that's how I understood it. The, um, because of having done stuff with holograms uh, as an undergraduate, I had an understanding of how holograms work. Uh, the project I did with the hologram is actually an interferogram. So what you can do with holograms is you can, 
what we did was had a little, um, it was me and a, a classmate, is that we had a little metal bar with a, that had a weight attached to it so that it would bend the bar back. But of course, imperceptibly in terms of, you know, visibly you couldn't see it. But what you do is you take a hologram of the, the bar and then you change the weight or you add the weight so that it's, it moves the, the metal bar slightly. And then you, you do a, a, a double exposure of the hologram. And so as you double expose the plate, so interestingly, you have to do all of this in pitch darkness, but when you double expose the holographic plate, you actually end up with the fringes of the, um, associated with the slight movement of the, the bar because the, the light has got to travel an extra tiny disk. And that's essentially radar interferometry, right? So, so I was, the, the concepts and understanding through the holograms is what made understanding interferometric radar a lot easier because well, I'd done it already in a holographic context. So let's stay on star because I mean, there's a lot to, to to talk about that. What there is? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, one could write an entire book about it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is so when when people talk about SAR, uh, one of the things that comes up is it can see through clouds, and that's why it's great. But there's a lot more to that. What what is the or what are some of the things that you find most exciting, most interesting about SAR? Because the, the reason I ask that is because I, I find that to be an interesting angle to start with when talking to people about why should you even care about this thing? It's a lot more complicated than all these other sources of data, but it's still really interesting and there's some unique properties about it. And so there's the explaining how it works. That's one aspect, but the Another one is, why does it even matter? And that's what I'd like to dig into from, from your point of view, at least. There is uh, a sort of a terrible history of SAR that is associated with um, saying, look how wonderful SAR is, it can see through clouds, right? And there are some applications, um, military applications might be one, but disaster response and everything else where you say, well, if I can be guaranteed an image, whether it's cloudy or not, clearly advantageous. So uh, why a terrible history? It sounds like a nice... Well, it's a terrible history because what, what it, it means is that everybody forgets the fact that that's the least important benefit of SAR. In terms of why SAR, you're asking why SAR particularly different. I mean, I was at a conference, I won't name what the conference is. Um, but I was at a conference and they had a session looking at SAR. And they were all talking about images and how difficult it was to interpret images and all these high resolution commercial companies providing, you know, really detailed... Uh, Submeter resolution SAR data and how difficult it was to interpret the images and everything else. And the whole session was just about images. And I thought, well, but who cares about the images? They're, that's the, you know, backscatter is the least exciting part of synthetic aperture radar. So just, I want to backscatter being. So just the brightness. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you've got the waves coming back and you've got the, the magnitude of those waves. So how bright they are. So it's what you would see if you get a single image and you open it up. And well, you normalize it a little bit, like this gradient of color is that that's what we're talking yep. about. Yeah, I just want to like add a yep. lot of context. Good point. So the backscatter you're saying least interesting. I mean, it's useful uh, in some contexts, but it's the least in it's the least sort of interesting from the perspective of what what makes SAR particularly good or or unique. It's when you get into looking at the phase information, so the cycle of where the the the, the wave is at. And, and in particular, if you can get multiple measurements and that's either in polarization or multiple images, 
where you can look at the difference in those phases. And that's where things really become amazing, right? And the, so the interferometric um, wide swath mode on, on Sentinel-1, for example, it's fantastic for doing interferometry. And, it's, and it seems to be the least spoken about. Now, to be fair, there are, there are sectors and uh, areas that use this as a regular thing. A lot of the geophysicists, for example, use it. Radar interferometry as standard. There's a lot of people doing things like permanent scatter interferometry and looking at long-term motions of the ground surface. Uh, but in, in other areas, it sort of seems to be ignored. I'm very, I'm very glad to, to, that I'm, I'm, well, I'm hoping. I was informed that there will be some interferometric coherence magnitude that, um, layers that will come onto Earth Engine soon, or sometime in 2023. Which is fantastic from my Earthblocks perspective as well, because bringing in coherence magnitude is a is a completely unique kind of measure that is just incredible in terms of what it's potentially able to do. It's it's most famous for being able to detect very small changes in the uh, in the surface, and so the unsurprisingly, the military therefore have got a lot a lot of interest in that. If something drives across a desert. The desert might look exactly the same as it was before and after, but the interferometric coherence will will pick that up, and you'll see a big strip through the desert where something is driven. So, not surprisingly, the various points in the early nineteen nineties that became an interesting topic. Right. But the um, but we've looked at uh, we did a little interesting study, partly for fun, at the, in the Nazca Plateau in Peru. So you know where there's the big lines and the geoglyphs. Um. It is, uh, Eric von Daniken made it famous in the 1970s by claiming that these were landing strips for alien spacecraft. <laughs> but so it's, it's a big desert plateau. <laughs> Virtually nothing ever happens on these plateaus. And that's why these thousand year old uh, carvings on the surface of the, of the desert are still visible and they're still there. And if you look at the optically, or if you just look at it every day, you can go back and everything just looks exactly the same. But if you use interferometric, coherence magnitude you can actually see where people have driven across the the roads um you can see where the a very occasional rainfall has um washed across some of the, the pampa because just moving the randomly moving the stones on the surface in fractions of a wavelength so centimeters is detectable from space so that just as a, as a simple measure of of things like change and i think we've still to see Lots of new applications come about from from that. So if we can get it onto Earth Engine and Earth Blocks and make that uh, easy for people to get a hold of, I think there's going to be lots of interesting stuff that will suddenly appear that we didn't know we could look at with coherence magnitude. So the again, I I, I like trying to rephrase, make sure I understand the value of SAR is kind of exponential for every new image. So if you have one image, you, you have a certain value. If you have two images, it's more than the sum of the two images in terms of yep, that's kind a of good value. Way of looking at it. And but if you have optical, it's just it's quite linear. If you well, maybe a little bit more, but if you get another image, all you can do is has has it changed from the the previous day you have an image, but it's only kind of a visual inspection. You can't really you, you can't have a whole entire new data set that's created just by adding one more image. But in SAR, you can do this, but you need like the value of, of that kind of 
grows, let's say, exponentially with the more images that you have. It, that's a nice way of putting it, yes. Right. Exponential might be steeper than yeah. <laughs> but the general idea. Absolutely. And the thing is that that phase information is a, is a, it's a geometry thing. So the way to think about SAR is that SAR is really good at measuring geometry. So rather than, you know, the very small movements. So when you start to use the phase differences to detect change, there's a famous one of uh, London, for example, using permanent scatter interferometry. And you can see geographical things in the image in terms of where the ground has, has risen or, or sunk. And it's, it's not noise, right? It's definitely right. geographic patterns. And then you look at the scale and the scale is minus four millimeters a year up to plus four millimeters a year. And you think, what? Four millimeters, that's just a tiny little yeah. shift. How on earth can we measure that from 600 kilometers above the earth? And that's it's those kind of very sensitive geometric measurements. So the earthquake people use it now all the time. Volcano people use it all the time. Um, it's being used for landslides. It's being used for detecting the stability of railway lines and infrastructure and everything. So in an engineering context, there's a whole area of synthetic aperture radar, which is just using that as a regular thing and it's uh and it's often forgot about in in some other sectors where we go oh you can see through clouds <laughs> so the main the main aspect again i i, I want to kind of make sure that people listening kind of follow along is that that can measure differences within one wavelength compared to in yep. optical what you can see is basically you're limited by the ground resolution of the sensor. So if you have something that can see well, 10 I mean, meters. So, so when you say right. limited, you, that, that we're starting getting to qualitative suggestions yeah. that one is better than another. And I would always argue it's fit for purpose. And the thing about optical data is that the spectral information that we get from optical data is, um, is incredible. And you can extract amazing information from that. And, and radar does something different. If people that move from optical into radar make the mistake of trying to use radar as if it's just a, another image in a different band. Right. And, and if you do that, you'll get some results, but you won't get anywhere near as much out of the radar as is, is there in terms of the data. There's so much, it's so much richer and it's because it's doing, it's really good at doing other stuff, you know, other stuff, yeah, geometry yeah, yeah. and shape. And I think what I was trying to get to is more the, the, how come we can see, those small changes but if if something moves by two meters in sar you you can't get down to that millimeter change uh yeah it's, it's, it's i mean smaller, that's the irony isn't it that's is that if the, it moves too much yeah that, that's uh, kind of what right. i was trying to get to is that it's like you have a microscope that can only see tiny tiny changes but if something moves too much actually now it gets outside of the uh kind of focal length well, that's a terrible way maybe to say it but um the swath of of what sar could see historically i think there was a bit of a blind spot in terms of that scale so scale of wavelengths millimeters centimeters you saw in sar and if it was on the scale of many tens of centimeters or meters you'd miss that and then by the time it get into tens of meters you'd see it again in the you know landsat sentinel 2 I think the the high. That's interesting. There's this like blind spot. That's well, I think nice it was. Way. I think that's less so now that you've got commercial satellites that are filling in that gap, so right. that you can get, you know, what is it? Albedo's now got a license for thirty centimeter resolution right. data. Um. So the so those kind of changes that are related to maybe landslides or or other things, um, earthquakes, the like, is that you'll be able to see those changes now from the high resolution 
before and after. Whereas you go, you know, not very long ago, you, you couldn't see those, those scale of movements. You either had to be very tiny or quite large. And there was a missing bit in the middle. And that missing bit's being filled by these high resolution. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. It's not we're, we're going lower and lower and lower, but it's we've actually been very, very small, but we're, we're kind of bridging the, the, the gap. That's Yeah, I never thought about it like that. So one of the interesting things I wanted to discuss with you is the going on the uh, history aspect a little bit and specifically the, the military uh, history of a lot of remote sensing. Yep. I know uh, that's something that you've mentioned a couple times. I've seen you mention online a couple times that that is something that you make sure in the, in the teaching that you do, in the education that you do, that students and, and people who are, are learning understand that that it has a lot of military uh, history and background. So there's kind of two questions. Can you like provide a bit of a history lesson? And then why is it so important for you to communicate that as well? Uh, I'll do that in reverse order. I think it's important. <laughs> it, it's important to communicate it because students have to be able to engage in that topic. Um, they have to be able to understand that the Venn diagrams overlap considerably in terms of you know, military intelligence interests and um, environmental or other um, civilian applications is that the, in terms of the technology, so we see that just now in, you know, commercial companies, especially the commercial radar companies are, are being paid to collect tons of data all the time over the Ukraine, right? I assume mostly um, American Department of Defense is, is paying for that. But the, uh, and that's partly because you can see through the clouds and you can see in the dark, so you're guaranteed to have that coverage um, all the time. Um, so I, I try to make sure that my students kind of understand that they can't step away from the discussion, right? They can't say, um, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with things that are related to um, military intelligence and defense. It's like, well, the whole history of synthetic capture radar or the whole history of radar is a is a military is a, as a military tool right um so radar is a military tool that we have found civilian applications for uh the classic false color composite where you put your near infrared into the red channel so you get your red green and blue color composite and you put near infrared into the red the red into the green and the green into the blue those color do you know do you know the history of where the, that color no. do you know the color composite type i mean it means that all the vegetation looks red yeah Right. The history of that was color infrared photography because the way that the color, um, the, the chemical bands for the different colors for the color infrared photography is that that's how it recorded it. So that, that when you process the film is that the, the film layer that was sensitive to the near infrared would look red and the film layer that was sensitive to the green would look red. I've lose track. I need to write that down. But you know the different channels, and that so and that that was uh, developed as color infrared photography in order to overcome the fact that people were using camouflage, right? So it was a military tool in order right. to identify that. Well, if you paint your, if you used to use optical photographs in your surveillance, right? So you know, World War One, they were already taking photographs from aircraft to try to map out where everybody was um and then people say well we'll just paint we'll just paint camouflage we'll paint our tank so we paint it green yeah we'll paint it green and then you won't see it in amongst all the vegetation and they said well okay let's develop 
because the tanks aren't highly reflective in the near infrared and the vegetation is. So we'll develop the color film that we can use for surveillance so that the tanks will turn up dark amongst the very bright vegetation. And so that, that color banding comes from that color infrared photography. Um, now, interestingly, it's, military has all moved on. So camouflage paint is now highly reflective in the near infrared, right, to get around that. So they've had to move on. But our remote sensing community still use that color combination as a kind of a default where the vegetation looks red. You pick up any introduction, introduction to remote sensing textbook and you flick through it and you'll see a picture that's got a, oh, the vegetation looks red. Why, why do that? That's yeah. a weird thing to do. And it's only because historically that was the color bands of the uh, near infrared color photography. Because you're trying to see the difference between the vegetation and the other thing that you're looking yep, for. Exactly. So when that other thing that you're looking for, that, if that's what you care, you kind of look for something else. But it turns out it's actually also great for seeing vegetation. And if, if you care about vegetation, you can just keep using that. Yeah. I, I mean, it identifies the vegetation, vegetation pretty easily. And then, you know, most of what we know about the history of the Arctic sea ice is, um, is from military measurements. Um, and so we... I think it's important that we kind of engage and recognize that that's, you know, we are inextricably linked to military surveillance. And that's partly because civilian inventions will be used by the military and military inventions will eventually be used by the, by the civilian domain. Right. I mean, pretty much I'm not, ah, uh, could I find evidence? I'm pretty sure. I think it's not, um, I think it's well documented that, you know, most of the origins of, the very high resolution optical sensors that came into the civilian domain, you know, round about the turn of the century were companies that had been building these things for military contracts for a while. And then the technology becomes declassified so they can sell it in a civilian domain. I mean, in, in radar, in the star world, that's exactly what's happening as well. Is if you want to start a company, it's, it's going to require a lot of upfront money a lot of upfront capital to be able to build that company that builds and launch satellites. So you want to have, you want to be sure that some people are going to be able to pay for that and you can make a profit yeah. off of it. So that means you need huge contracts that justify all that upfront investment. And right now it's still a little bit up in the air as to whether there's commercial applications that can sustain those industries enough, but there is military, there are military contracts that can support this. So it's also true in, in, in the SAR world and a lot of the companies that are being built are only able to exist because of the huge military contracts that, that can sustain those companies. And then they have to go on to try to see, can we make it work with, uh, with commercial down the line? So I think there's an interesting difference between Europe and North America in that context. Right. So I think American um, companies, especially in the SAR domain, um, have an advantage because they will get big contracts from the DOD to, to keep the lights on. Um, I don't know about more recently, but I'm fairly sure that ISAG originally, you know, didn't start off in that domain and, you know, uh, and their progression was probably slower as a consequence, right? They, but, you know, ISAG are very successful at doing what they do. Um, it may be that they have had to capitulate and, and are now doing military contracts. I don't know. But, the, uh, but other, you know, you look at the American companies and they're definitely getting military contracts that get them set up very quickly. And I think it's disadvantageous to the, 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 to SAR generally because 
the military intelligence just say, well, I want really high resolution. Give me the highest resolution possible. Right. Uh, because actually, uh, we just have experts that do visual interpretation of that. And we want it as quick as possible every time we want it. So seeing through clouds and seeing at night and being having a pointing ability, that's perfect. Just do that for us. And, and it's possible, much more likely maybe, is that the commercial civilian opportunities in SAR are possibly more in the information that you get out of the phase information. So those ground displacements and um, the very subtle differences that you can pick up with SAR. And that's much harder to do. And the, so the commercial companies, they're generally not optimized for doing interferometry. Right. So just for context as well, ISI is, I think, the only or one of the only European companies that's doing SAR at the moment. Maybe yeah. there's a... I mean, well, well te no, I guess uh, there's the public partner, a public-private partnership kind of models like, because um, I think Cosmos SkyMed is, is like that, and Airbus and Terrasar X. Oh, right, yes. So yeah, they're sure. European. And they're, Fair enough. And they're sort of commercial. Um, I think what ISI is is the is the new wave of um, lower cost, smaller, compact. Yeah, yeah. And there's systems. a bunch of other American companies that are doing that. Yeah, so Capella and Number are the two main ones out of the US. I think there's a third one coming along. Um, but yeah, they're they're quite. I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of optimism that something will turn up. <laughs> so let's go there a little bit. That's also something that I, I wanted to, to go over is you've been in this field way before this whole new space uh, era, let's call it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what else to call it. Started. So that is about 10, 15 years we can push it. This, this kind yeah. of whole new space, which starts with depending on who you ask, but it starts with SpaceX dramatically lowering the cost to launch payloads, which means that now you can justify sending more stuff. And so a lot of companies start up and um, get spun up, I mean, and part of those are Earth observation companies, and part of those are synthetic aperture radar companies. We just named a few. And so you've kind of seen that whole evolution go from it was just public programs. So we talked about Landsat, for example. Sentinel comes a lot later to now there's a lot of um, private companies that come in that provide a lot of data. Well, the, so um, I'm not sure I'd like to give SpaceX the credit for starting the, the new space wave. They've, I think they've you know, they're clearly contributed, but I think it comes before that in terms of the, so the CubeSat model you could still launch them and piggyback on other things. That's um, true. So it was still kind of low cost. Uh, I still remember early days of um, Clyde Space in Glasgow. So Craig Clark, I got to come through to talk to, um, he was the CEO and founder of Clyde Space, came to talk to our students. And I had another colleague come to talk about uh, the route to launching something through ESA and basically make a comparison. And it was, it was, you could see the students sort of engaging in this quite nicely to see ESA you know, concept to launch 10, 15 years, you know, CubeSats concept to launch 18 months. And, and that's, you know, definitely changed a, a lot of stuff. But I don't think, uh, I think we should, certainly in the radar context, of course, RadarSat is the first 
that I would point to as a commercial operator. There was probably commercial operators, and in fact, it was probably MDA and the like that were doing it for mm-hmm. military contracts before that. But, you know, RadarSat was, uh, the figure that I heard um, was that at one point, RadarSat was doing so well that it was like one of the highest earning companies in Canada, right? So in terms of purely on the basis of faxing out an, an image of where the sea ice was to ships going through the Northwest Passage. And it was a very clear use case, um, very clear value add. And they had a, you know, a mission that was optimized for doing exactly that. And it did it really well. So as a commercial operator, that's an example of, um, and I think sometimes we forget that, that they've been going for what, 25 years or something um, and have, you know, really were the, uh, the pioneers in terms of a commercial radar system. What was your other question? I forgot now. It wasn't really a question, uh, but I was kind of curious about how, yeah, your your general thoughts of seeing that progress and where you're seeing the the trend line going and and just uh, okay. So the, I mean, the trend the trend line is um, is worrying in terms of the sustainability of low Earth orbit. Okay, you know, so some of these questions about uh, how do you feel about having more artificial stars in the night sky than natural stars in the night sky, right? So who's asking that question? And I know there are people, there's people at Edinburgh asking that question. Um, it's a big issue for astronomers in terms of being photobombed by streaks of mm-hmm. satellites. There is, um, so there's a big question there about should we be sending up quite so much stuff? And CubeSats um, have made that even easier to just chuck stuff up. And the fact that it makes it cheaper risks you know the fact that we do you know you see that with um with elon musk you know you just chuck up lots of stuff and you kind of becomes a bit wild west and there is nothing yet that that properly constrains that or has some control over it um and so i think we have to be careful about that and i also know that you know i've got a colleague so steve hancock's um doing lots of interesting stuff in terms of trying to develop a new concept for um Spaceborne LiDAR, and he uh, published a paper looking at the economics of it. And it may be that, you know, some some cases like that, the economics of it say actually a medium-sized satellite is better than a swarm of, you know, a constellation of lots of little ones. So there's lots of different scenarios where, in fact, we might start to go, well, that was a phase that we went through and we've kind of saturated that. And now we realize there's actually some very specific use cases, and this is what we you know, these kind of missions will do that. So um, I don't think we've quite passed that that wave yet. Um, and Planet, you know, Planet's a really good example in terms of getting the coverage. And because of the cloud cover in the optical domain, you want to make as many measurements as you possibly can to try to increase the chance that your pixel doesn't have a cloud in it. So there's there's models like that that, that kind of make sense. And I think they've done a good job at demonstrating that actually collecting global data, there is a good use case for that and i think you see that we see that now with the sentinel data is the fact that we can look backwards in time so every year all that historic data becomes more and more valuable because you can look further back if you know what i mean so it's um uh yeah so there's there's some things that i think that that we've made great advances in that uh, for earth observation in in the whole new space side of things um and i think other things will maybe just actually come back a little bit and revisit what the optimum is to to do the mission at hand do you think that's because right now we are trying to just get as much data as we can and so we're sending as much 
satellites as well as we can. I mean, it's a it's a proxy. Uh, if you have more satellites, you can have more data. That's not exactly true, but it's a good proxy that if you have more satellites, you can have more data. And we're not quite sure what to do with it yet. Is that is that uh, kind of I think your point? It's definitely the case that we don't know what to do with all the data. And somebody's you know, lots of people are hoping that that one day it'll become useful. There's definitely a bit of that, but there is also Earth observation satellites that um that don't always make the news. Yeah, that are just doing regular standard stuff, right? The, the the old guard of old space kind of things are still collecting data. They're selling data. They're um they've got applications. They've got business areas where people find it useful to have that information. I think weather satellites is like a really good example of some of the most useful Earth observation satellites that get pretty much no attention, yet everybody yeah. uses. Absolutely. And the the entire weather forecasting, you know, the global weather forecasting system is entirely dependent on satellite data. So they're the, they're the only, are they the only Earth observation data that is truly operational? Um, well, the Sentinels, I guess, are getting there. But certainly up until the Sentinels, the weather data, weather satellites were the only ones that were truly operational, insofar as if one fails, gets replaced immediately because we can't do without it. Um, as opposed to lots of other, you know, satellites, which are nominally research. Um, and if they failed, well, you get around to replacing it eventually. But the Sentinels, I mean, that's what's been amazing about the Sentinels is that they're moving to that model. So, you know, you lose one of the Sentinel ones, you've got one ready, almost ready to, to replace it. So it's not quite in the stage that you can replace it very, you know, almost instantaneously, but it's, um, there is a reduction in service, but there's not a loss of service. So let me ask you maybe a bit of a philosophical question, uh, but I, I, it's a very broad one, but I like asking it. What, what's the thing that's most exciting for you right now in, in the like whole earth observation field? Uh, we, we've, we've covered quite a lot already in the conversation. So thinking about all of that, about the, the commercial aspect, the data aspect, uh, the academic aspect, all of that, like, what is it that you are excited about now, given where this entire field is at? Uh, I think, um, well, of course, that's partly biased, but in terms of the things that I'm interested in. Sure. But there is a collection of, you know, um, from my Scottish perspective, it's a data log, right? So there's this mass amount of, of data, and we haven't quite worked out how to feed it through the pipe so that people actually get running water in all their houses, right? And that's, I think that's where we're, where we're at, is that to some extent, you can't have the infrastructure for the, um, you know, the water supply until you've got enough water to make it worthwhile distributing. And the last 10 years has seen this huge collection of Earth observation data. And, it's, you know, I can't remember what the, this, some credible statistic, like the amount of Earth observation data collected in the last year or two is more than everything that's been collected ever before that, some crazy statistic like that. So it's a very exponential growth. So I think we're just at that cusp now where there is so much data that we just have to find ways to pipe it into people's homes so they can actually use it in a sensible way. And that requires some you know, filtering and quality control and everything else that you would expect from water before it comes out your tap. Um, and I think we're just, we're, I think we're just about there. And I think that's where you see that in the context of, so Earth Engine been running for 10 years, doing incredible stuff. And now 
AWS and Microsoft Planetary Computer are have recognized that that is, that is where it's at and they're moving into that space now. And that's where I feel quite confident that this is where we're at this point where um, we don't see it quite yet. So there's still these companies and these companies have to just hold on long enough that we get to that point where we start to realize and it might not be the, you know, the killer application. It's just a, a lot of, a lot of very key um, valuable applications, right? right? It doesn't have to be one thing that's going to, completely break the dam and all the data comes flying out and suddenly becomes valuable. It's going to, it might be just lots of little things, but we have to find ways to make sure that everybody understands what that data might do for them and how it works. And that's how I got into things like Earthblocks, which is, you know, how do you make it really easy for, for the non typical earth observation expert to be able to, to inquire and investigate and, explore the data and start to go, oh, I didn't realize you could see that. If you can do that, can you do that every day? Can you do that um, at finer, you know, I want to see more detail. And then when they start coming back, those questions to say, yeah, I can see how I can use this, but it's not quite fine enough detail for me, or it's not quite often enough. Then that starts feeding back to the, you know, the business plans of the next generation of these the satellite companies to say, all right, if you need that this often in this particular location at that level of detail, and then we've got a deal, then yeah, okay, we'll fill that gap for you. But I think there's a, there's a stage where we've got to get more people engaged with the data. So the domain experts, and that's, you know, that's foresters, it's um, lawyers, it's vets, it's engineers, you know, just about every topic that you can list that isn't earth observation or, or GI. So, I mean, that's a perfect segue into the, the, work you're doing at Earthblocks. Can you explain to me um, kind of that elevator pitch of, of what Earthblocks is doing? And then, yeah, let's move from there. Uh, well, the elevator pitch is, is essentially the, you know, Earth Engine is the most incredible tool on the planet still for looking at geospatial data. So it's got Earth observation data, but it's also got other types of geospatial data in it. And the barrier to entry to that has, you know, got to learn a bit of JavaScript. And essentially I was too lazy to learn JavaScript, right? JavaScript, it's one, two semicolon for me. <laughs> so the, I thought it must be, there must be an easier way to do this. So we built a, an interface that is a, you know, a no code interface. You drag and drop the blocks. I want this data at this time on this place to do this. Click. And it, and it just gets it. And that's, um, you know, I, it's for me in an educational context, it's absolutely amazing to, then to be able to go into class and let students explore a wide variety of data over the whole globe for data that goes back almost 25 years and they can do it within minutes. They don't have to do six weeks of theory first to right. go and do this. And then the commercial domain is, you know, it's also, we're seeing people that, that can get their answers quicker than before. So that's kind of what I want to then dive in. So Earthblocks is this uh, no-code platform that allows to manipulate Earth observation data. And other data. Okay. What? Well, so there's Earth observation data, there's climate data, there's, um, you know, Earth Engine's got 700 or data sets in it. Um, 
I mean, other data we've used, you know, in terms of the fire data, this population data, there's, um, you know, a wide variety of geospatial information that's there. And, and ultimately, you know, you'll be able to load up your own data or bring in commercial data. From there, who is that for? Who are you building uh, EarthBlocks for? So dom domain experts, right? So somebody who understands the problem needing solved, but maybe did one course in remote sensing as an undergraduate. So they kind of know enough. The analogy, right, the analogy is um, you've, you've got a significant other coming for dinner and you want to impress them, right? You've got, you've got three choices. One, you can go to the supermarket and buy all the ingredients, find a recipe, put it all together, impress them that way. Or you can take them out to a fancy restaurant, pay much more money, but somebody else does all the hard work and it's, you know, it's very impressive. And that's, so there are some companies out there that do the whole, the, the, the whole restaurant kind of thing. There's other places, you know, the supermarket is more the writing JavaScript and Earth Engine. But you can also get the, your food boxes that come with high quality ingredients, just the right things that you need, a nice recipe. So you've got to do a little bit of work yourself, but you can, you can generate something impressive and tasty without all the challenge of building it from scratch and without all the expense of going to a fancy restaurant. And that's where Earthblocks is, is in that model, where it's like you, you, you need to know a little bit about how to, you know, the equivalent of, you know, boiling an egg, right? You don't need to know that much about fancy cuisine, to, right. but you can still produce something of high quality. And it's going to be a lot easier, quicker, cheaper than going down to the restaurant and right. all the, the stuff, the expenses associated with that. So my next question is around the business model and how making money works. I, I, I like understanding like where does the money come from and how it's working. So if we stick on that analogy, a lot of these cooking, uh, like middlemen, no, not middlemen, but like uh, second option, if there's the, the your three options, there's the very fancy where you go, you, you pay a high price, uh, but you get really good stuff. There's the supermarket where you have a lot of options, but you need to figure out what you pay and you only pay for what you need. And then usually that second layer is a subscription model or something like that, or you pay, I don't know, every month and you get four boxes every month, something like that. Is Earthblocks going for something a little bit similar? So yeah, Earthblocks is a, is a SaaS, so it's a software as a service of subscri subscription-based right. model. And is that based on, because there's data as well. It's not just a, a service, it's data as well. So how does that kind of come into the, to the business model, well, they it, it depends if you want to, if you want to use commercial data, then right. that's a that's an add-on, right? But all the data that comes as your standard collection is is available to use. And so, what are some of the the feedbacks that you've gotten the from from Earthblocks? Like, who are you talking with? Do you have maybe examples of some of the users you're talking about? The domain experts. Do you have a, a couple examples that you could talk about, maybe? So there's some examples, I think, on the website, but the um, the key thing is that the uh, what we're finding is, so nature-based solutions is a big one. Um, insurance companies are uh, another one. I mean, they're the two that are our major one, and education. Um, so those three are, are, uh, are probably the largest activity just now. And they, you know, they find it faster, quicker, easier. 
And it's usually, I mean, a good example, I won't say the company, but there was a financial company at the University of Edinburgh recently doing a workshop. Uh, and I was talking to somebody at this company who um, kindly came up and reminded that he'd been in my class some years before. And it's like, well, he was a, a classic example of, um, you know, of the kind of person that's going to use Earthblocks is because they're actually now in the domain of finance, not in Earth observation, but they've but they they've done enough of a of a background to kind of know the principles and the basics, so they know kind of what they want to look for, um, kind of understand the idea of selecting red, green, and blue to right, right, produce right. A, an image. So they're not they're not they're not as zero, but they're now in a domain which is, you know, and they're not they wouldn't consider themselves an earth observation expert. They'd, right, right. Um, they consider themselves now a finance expert, and so they're, um, that's the that's the kind of person that's going to find the most or the kind of organization that's going to get the most out of it. I want to play devil's advocate a little bit uh, for, a, sure. for a while. Um, so a lot of the remote sensing world geospatial is used to a lot of open source as well, be it on the data and the tooling. And so there are, you said there are many platforms. There's uh, Microsoft Planetary Computer, AWS is starting some things, and then there's Google Earth Engine. That's, I think, the oldest of all these kind of platforms that exist. And one of the common criticism of Google Earth Engine is that it's a bit of a walled garden. It's that you you come in and you kind of have to play by Google's rules. But that's something that's seen mostly by the the people within that community who are kind of used to the the open source. So how do you think about that? Because Earthblocks then is is built on top of Google Earth Engine, I, I imagine. So does it also put you in this position where you're kind of playing by Google's rules compared to building something from open data and open tools where you're kind of more in control, let's say? Has, has that been a decision factor as well? So there's two questions in there, right? So the Google Earth Engine, it's interesting in terms of people's perception of it um, and, and people's concerns about using Earth Engine. Uh, and it's, it's a tricky one insofar as it's, it's just, I mean, it's about as open as it can be. It's not, people complain about it being a bit of a black box, but it's relatively clear in terms of what they do with the data and things. A lot of the data is not, has not had much done to it at all. So um, it's just a repository. And then it's a, you know, it's an incredible resource and it's remarkable that they've made that available for free for so long. Um, you're still paying for it, right? Everybody's paying for it because you're using Google search engines and Google products and, and they're selling your data to people to make money. And the fact that they make money doing that means that they can support Earth Engine, right? So we, yeah, it's, it's a, a conversation that keeps coming up because every, everything gets paid for by somebody somewhere. Yeah. Um, and it's just about, well, where is that? Where should that be? Uh, Earthbox is never going to be open source, you know, just like any of the other products out there. They're not going to be open source fully. Is it going to be open? You know, we'd love to be able to have a free version, but, it, you know, we're but a, you have to pay it. We're somewhere. a startup, right? Yeah. And we've got teams, we've got people that, that um, need to get paid and we're building this tool. Um, and, and I'd really love to hope that someday in the future, we'll be able to find some way to, to make that access as um, easy as open as possible. 
we're only a few years old, right? So we're not quite at that stage of being able to do that. We're not Google, right? We don't we don't make money from other sources in a way that no. Uh, but then that, that payment is very upfront. It's very visible. It's very yeah, like yeah. this is how it's, we make money. Exactly, and that's you know we and. And we want to make that as clear as possible. And we want to, especially in the education sector, we want to make sure that we can get as many people involved in um, through the education sector because that's where you can really broaden the, the the use cases and everything else. Um, it is so that's that's always a challenge, right? And unfortunately, that's not the, these these challenges. I, I don't have to deal with them to keep me awake. <laughs> um, but we do um, in terms of the Google link. Uh, you know, I think Google do, Google do a very good job and they, you know, they give it away for free Earth Engine for, you know, most users as, as long as you're not, there's now a commercial model if you want yeah, to do yeah. commercial stuff. Um, and so, yeah, you can complain about it, but it's, um, you know, it's not bad for, right. for, you know, for what you pay for it, i.e. zero. Um, but I guess that's also one of the, the criticism that comes up is that Google has a history of, killing stuff yeah right so that so so i've we you know that's clearly something of that we have to pay attention to um and and we talk to google about that right uh and but unlike many of these other products is that google internally in-house they use earth engine so earth engine is not something that they just give out for other people part of the reason that gets supported is that within the company the broader company they use earth engine for things that they do in the company and the fact that they've now moved to the commercial model and through the sort of Google Cloud ang- angle is that that's actually made it much more um, part of the core stuff that they do. Right, it's not right, just right. a periphery. So the the it's the chances of it being dropped are right. virtually zero. So you feel like there's more. Mm, less chance of that happening basically like it's you can't guarantee any of these but you can't guarantee anything basically but that 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 is worth taking the risk of building something on top of it if yeah. i understand so, correctly right absolutely i think the the risk was next to zero before they went commercial um right. and the risk is even less now so i want to come back to the the education aspect and um one of the things I, I hear as well, and I'm very curious to have your your stance on, is that um, a lot of the value of of open source in the teaching environment is that these are tools that can be then taken outside of the academic world. So we were talking about Google Earth Engine just recently announced that they have a business model, basically, like you can pay them if you want to use google earth engine in a commercial application but it's free in the academic area um and so how are you thinking about that where having tools that are helpful in the academic world but then are harder to use or or more expensive to use outside of that and the, the reason i'm asking is also because companies like esri for example or microsoft do that where they have a software that is free, very cheap, very easily to get uh, illegally, for example, uh, in an academic world, like they turn a blind eye. So you get used to those products. Again, I'm playing a bit devil's advocate here. And then once you are outside of that world, that's kind of where the real cost starts ramping up. As you said, the money has to come from somewhere. And so I'm, I'm curious how you're thinking about that. Um, so that is, 
that's a good question because and it's a challenge you know for me to sit here and say yeah of course i want everybody to use earth boxes i want everybody to get <laughs> access to earth observation and make mm -hmm. that even broader um and and on the other hand you say well you get all these students using earth blocks but then they they'll go off and into a company and then they don't have access to it so they have to get them to pay for it that's the the challenge is that that's the same for every every piece of software right in anywhere um and the open there's there's always a place for open source right so um you know there's some very good tools for uh you know um qgis for example um but qgis is a real pain to to load up on a mac um and you know there's other things like that that make it uh it's it's never going to be the same as other commercial software right right um but we're not they're not that's not the type of software that earthblocks is aiming to to replace anyway it's, it's quite different so it's it's a it's a challenge that um you know the alternative is say well we just well we just charge students to, to to pay for it so at least they know that it costs money yeah i, I guess um, my point being more about we talked about javascript or python and and it's I kind of think about ah, that so as that's... learning to read, for example, compared to having someone that, that can read it for you about is it is it worth that's what I'm curious about it is there are open source uh, alternatives, but they're not perfect because they have a much higher learning curves for a lot of them. And yeah. QGIS is great, but there are some limitations. And that's kind of what I'm curious about. I'm not trying to get to one is better. I'm yeah, trying to get so, how you're well, thinking about it. So uh, interestingly, that came up and um the seminar I was giving yesterday that came up in the question as well is that uh, I don't see in an educational context, I don't, Earthblocks is not replacing um, the, the, our master students at Edinburgh all learn how to, all, all learn to do Python, right? We're not going to say, oh, you don't have to learn to do Python anymore. Right, because it's not a one size fits all solution. Well, well, in particular, because they, um, you know, that's my, that's my model in terms of the typing pool which we can maybe get to, but mm -hmm. they, is that our master students are going to be the people that go on to build the next generation of tools like Earthblocks. Um, the, where Earthblocks is valuable is that I, I, I get to teach across a much broader group of people. So we can potentially now start to get lawyers or law students doing a little bit of, you know, they're doing environmental law. They might spend a couple of hours now um, yeah. Because they can get onto Earthbox and they can do it in a couple of hours and they can look at some of the things. A lot of the work in Edinburgh is to do with the relationship between the conflict and environment. Um, so being able to go in and observe environmental change in locations uh, is is valuable for them. But they don't have to do the three weeks of you know prep work before they can actually start to look at the data. They can jump straight in. They learn a little bit about you know what they're doing. And they can do that. And likewise, other students, maybe in sustainable development or students in engineering or other courses. So it's about the the course core students, they're still going to be learning the Python. Yeah. Right. And in fact, we might use Earthblocks as the stepping stone for those who haven't done any coding to say, well, these are the steps that you do. Now let's translate that into the coding steps that you do in code and then expand on that. So that's not it's not it's it's broadening rather than uh replacing. So to go back to the food analogy, <laughs> the Python is how you train the chefs yep. in the kitchen to use the knives and the stove and which ingredients go well together. And Correct. 
earth blocks being that layer of you get all the ingredients, someone's given them to you, there's clear instructions, you don't need anything else. Yeah, but there's still a chef behind there that's um, designed the recipe and yeah, yeah. chosen the ingredients and all that kind of stuff. So the restaurants and the and the the, um, the food boxes have those expert that expertise is is there. If you want to do all that, learn that expertise yourself and buy the ingredients and you know watch Jamie Oliver YouTube videos or something to learn how to do it yourself. You, you know we're not going to stop that. And that can lead to people getting wanting to know how to become chefs down the yeah. line. And yeah. then right, right, right. That makes sense. So let's talk about typing pools because I think you have yeah. some interesting. Well, the, uh, the, so my, um, I can't remember somebody uh, originally sort of had a discussion with me about this, and I and I sort of bought into it in a big way for such a long time that I've forgotten who it was. I originally talked about it, um, but when I started my first job, so uh, I did my masters at Dundee, I did my masters project at ITC in Enschede, and then I I worked for a year at what's called the what was then called the Marconi. Research Centre in Chelmsford, or it's actually Great Baddow, just outside of Chelmsford in Essex, northeast sort of from London. Um, a historic site that was part of the area where they um, developed radar during the war. So in fact, in their, um, in their little museum, they've got a three-dimensional model that was apparently built by the Luftwaffe for planning bombing raids over the area. So it's a three-dimensional model of the site and the location. And... So, uh, and historic in terms of developing radar. So, um, a, a lot of key people went through that lab in the UK and have gone elsewhere. Uh, they developed all the theoretical stuff for ERS one, SAR, and the my first job was actually working on phase A work for the Envisat synthetic aperture radar. So the ASAR, the advanced synthetic aperture radar, it was on the wide swath mode for that. Um, so they did. They were a real hotbed of uh, of technical expertise in in radar there. But I remember the first time we were doing a, a project for ESA, and I had to uh, produce the final report. And I said, "How do I do that? Where do I type that?" And they said, "No, you handwrite it, and you give it to the typing pool, and they will type it up." And the typing pool, certainly in those days, a group of women at typewriters who would basically type your handwritten notes into you know they'd check the spelling and the grammar and they'd format it correctly. They'd send it back to you, you'd mark it up with pen in terms of changes, send it back to them, and then you'd iterate until you were happy with the final report, and then when they would put it into all the, the, the proper format and all the structure and make sure everything was right so that you could submit it to ESA. Um, but when I joined, the, the lab had recently got a little piece of new technology, which was one of the first Macintosh computers. And I said, can I just type up my own report on that? Because... My my wife had taught me how to type touch type, and I can just I can just type up. Um, so I just typed my own stuff up. But that it's interesting if you look at the history, the the transition of moving into word processing, and because it was round about that time that well, the Macintosh computer and um, Windows were being developed. So that you've got Word as your first Microsoft version, um, which takes on some of that heavy lifting of the helping on the formatting and the spell checking and the uh, all, all of these components. So all of that expertise that was in the, the typing pool was now being embedded into this software. And very soon after that, so many people listening will think, you know, typing pool? Never heard of it. Um, because it very quickly died away um, within just a few years. And I think that, that we're going through that transition with um, Earth Observation, probably GIS as well, 
is that historically we would graduate students from Edinburgh who would then get jobs in, you know, water authorities or local government or an engineering company. And they would be a part of a little team that would be the expert people that anything to do with maps or satellite images or anything would be done just like the typing pool. So a little collection of experts that were locally in-house that you would hand them things to say, you know, can you do this mappy thing, um, please? And what's happening is that that expertise is now not in in-house. It's being moved to these companies that are um, that are developing these software tools, mostly software as a service through the web. Um, and so all that expertise is now moved into the software developers, not the, um, and, and away from these employing these local experts. And so at Edinburgh, we are, you know, part of what we're doing at Edinburgh is thinking that through in terms of, well, what we should be making sure our master students are learning so they are going into that domain, including things like learning how to code in Python, is that so that they can be ready, um, because the alternative is that they, it's actually the software developers that are getting jobs in these companies, not the earth observation people. So they need to know how to, you know, write code. They need to understand databases. They need to understand um, web-based map services and all of these things that are actually where the delivery of that earth observation and GI work, I think, we're moving to. And if you look at, because, you know, Aravind um, and his... Uh, nice graphics to do with lots of logos and things. If you look at all those logos and the software as a service, it's all as a service, you know, on the top of these columns and there's all these logos of companies. And it's like, these are all the companies now that are, that are soaking up that expertise so that the companies that are using them don't have to employ people that have that expertise. And that's the, um, that's a challenge for us at Edinburgh as educators to make sure our students are, are going prepared into that work environment. But that's also what I see, you know, Earthlocks is, is, is merely another example of that, is that the expertise is now in this company so that the, the clients of Earthlocks don't have to employ that expertise. They have to employ somebody that maybe knows a little bit about it, but they're mostly a domain expert in something else that knows a little bit about Earth observation rather than employing an Earth observation expert that knows a little bit about the, the right. domain expertise. Yeah, that was my next question, is that then you have two... Assuming that's the case and that's going, because that's a bit of a bet as well. I think I think you're onto something, but it's still a bet. We don't really know what's going to end up happening. It, it seems like there's two different options. Either you help people on the receiving end at getting better at uh, using those tools and making other decisions in their domains, or you go the other side, you go deeper on the software. I'm guessing you're seeing that opportunity as we have to go deeper on the on the software side. It, with my university hat on, it's it's both. It's okay. it's making sure that our master's students that are doing earth observation and geoinformation management or our GIS students are are going deeper and understand the 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 core basis. They're not they're not um as somebody put it uh I saw recently, we're not just we're not just graduating students with driving licenses for pieces of software, right? <laughs> Is that they've got to go a bit deeper than that. But the but the broader brush, you know, the widening that um, that capture is that we can now use tools like Earthblocks or other tools to to make sure that a whole range of other master students or undergraduate students are getting a little bit of flavor of the of what you can do with Earth observation because they can jump in quickly and they can do things that are quite remarkable in terms of scale and uh, uh, and you know the depth of what they can do very quickly with a very short 
um, and shallow learning curve so that we can, we can make sure that all these other people, the, the environmental lawyers or the um, accountants or the business school uh, people or the um, carbon management or sustainable development or, you know, all these other students that would not normally ever commit to a 10-week course to really get deep can, can now get it, um, can get a flavor of it and can, get, um, can start to find out what is possible so that they go well. You know, once they go out into the wide world, they go, oh, yeah, Earth Observation Day might actually help in that, this particular problem that we've got. So I want to take a little bit of a step back from that and kind of ask you, how do you take that step back to see things like that, whether they're right or wrong, but it seems like you've put a lot of thought into thinking about that. And, because then it affects how you have to decide what courses to teach for the next few years. So, but how do you get to that point? Are, do you have ways that help you think through? So this is a more general question, more than just the, the earth observation point of view. Like, do, have you found things that have helped you just through that thinking process? Uh, I think the, the, the most important thing for that thinking process is just uh, listening to other people. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm accumulating and listening to what people are saying about what they're doing and how things are changing and thinking, well, that's, um, uh, yeah, and, that, and that's what that starts those thinking, those thought processes going through my head to think, well, and then I go and try and validate it. So there's what, I can't remember the name of the website now, it's something like, will, will, will robots take my job or something <laughs> where you can type in the name of your, your career and it will tell you what the chance of, you know, it being replaced by automation is. Um, you know, the whole wave of new AI stuff might be changing that, some of those job descriptions. Um, but yeah, you look up remote sensing technician, you know, 40% chance of uh, being replaced by automation. And it's even got a little phrase where it says, start worrying, <laughs> right? Um, but the scientist, in terms of remote sensing scientists, and um, uh, it was much, I think it was 15% chance. And it basically said, you know, nothing to worry about. So that, and that actually just confirms you know, that hypothesis is that actually the more you are on that scale towards just being a technician is that actually that's being replaced by software as a service models. Um, if you actually really understand what's going on and you're, you're, you're deep in that topic, you've, you've still got, um, you've still got jobs to do because they're in the companies delivering that software as a service. They're just no longer in the client companies. They're in these service provider companies just in the same way that, that, that we still need skills in spelling and grammar and everything, but there are people who are skilled in that are employed by Grammarly rather than, um, you know, in a typing pool. And you still have people writing theses, but they just have a better tool to do yeah. that. One of the things I found interesting kind of going through uh, all the things you're doing is that you have, you have had actually for quite a long time, if I understood correctly, one foot in both academia and the commercial world for quite a while. And those are, there's a lot of overlap between the two, but you could have careers that are just in one or the other. But it seems like you've been involved in both for, for quite a long time. And I'd like to understand a little bit as to- Yeah, well, that goes back to my, your, your original question, right? So I said, uh, uh, ideas and educator, you mm -hmm. know, were the, those two key things. Um, having, so having a foot in academia is, is very much more associated to the education. And my passion to education is, a, is about the, 
the students learning stuff and doing well, but it's also still, you know, like I mentioned before, that's that inherent Scottish um, mentality towards education, higher education being a, a really valuable component of society. It's, it's fundamental to, uh, I believe, to a, a strong democracy to have a, um, an independent and um, an independent thinking place like a university that's, that's free to think un, unpopular and crazy ideas, right? Separate from government and separate from everything else. So I'm very passionate of, of that component. Um, in terms of ideas, it's great when you see ideas um, being turned into an actual application where it actually gets used. And that's where, so before, so 2008 was my first foray into sort of commercial world. Um, so Richard Tipper and Gary Davis, a former student, came and asked if I'd help set up Ecometrica back in 2008, just, just at the cusp of one uh, big downturn. And then, and then helping set up Earthblocks just before COVID. So, you know, I seem to have this knack of finding that <laughs> not quite the right timing. But, the, um, but even before that, I had been doing uh, collaborative work with other organizations and um, had been working with people like uh, Jean Vieff, who's now the CEO of Earthblocks, um, working with the Forestry Commission, for example, and commercial forestry companies. Um, I'd been working with other remote sensing companies that were, were applying some of the things that we'd been developing in the university. So that idea of the of seeing an idea turn into more than just an idea. And so that's that's always been the excitement of it's fun being in, you know associated with small companies and startups just because it it moves faster. You know, a startup versus a university is a speedboat versus an oil tanker, right? Yeah. Is that um there are some both of them have advantages and they're very different pace and things are very different. Um but it's it's fun it's fun being able to do a bit of both. The key thing is that the like like I said about listening to other people, the key thing in terms of the idea stuff is is finding good people to work with. So people that are actually much more focused, much more organized than I am, who can actually turn it into something practical. So the team of um so Jean Vave and Sam, for example, at Earthblocks are much more uh, focused and practical and um, on the ball when it comes to actually doing something that is that makes sure things happen whereas I've got a tendency to you know have five new ideas before breakfast and then uh, go wandering but the, so so that's that's why I get um, I get involved with the industry side of things is because those you see those ideas transform into something which is actually happening right rather than it just remaining an idea and some something mocked up over the weekend um, is that you work with good people that can can take that idea and, and actually turn it into something that's useful. Do you think that's helped you refine the process of having ideas? Like when you, you realize you understand better what it takes to go from idea to execution? Yeah, I'm probably better at, at prioritizing and filtering things out. Um, uh, I think it's fair to say that my colleagues at Earthblock still get lots of ideas thrown on them <laughs> and I leave it to their good judgment to filter out which ones are good and which ones aren't right do you think it's important to have that view of of, of both like do you feel like it helps you in being a better academic but also in, in the commercial field like do you feel like those help you really get better at it compared to because it's more being a 
general rather than really honing down on on one of them i am definitely yes all uh i've always been better as a generalist there than a, i've never been particularly good at any one specific thing um i tend to be um, I, joining joining across you know joining the dots across things and seeing a bigger picture is is, is typically what i'm better at than than any particular one topic you know so most of my colleagues at the university are better researchers and better teachers than me. Um, and most of my colleagues in Earthblocks are better business people than me. But I'm good at making the, the connections across things. And I guess that's where, that's where somehow uh, I can add value right, yeah. to both. Again, moving topic a little bit. We've talked a lot about the scientific aspect of it and the business aspect a little bit. When I was, I, I, I do try to do quite some research when I prepare these interviews and uh, you write quite a lot, like you've had a blog that's been going on for quite a while. And one aspect that seems to come up a few times is the importance of art mm -hmm. as well. It's an idea that seems to come up a few times, which is, one could say it's quite uh, orthogonal to science. Um, but there's a lot of overlap as well. And I'm very curious to know, to have m some more of your thoughts on on kind of the importance of art and if you've seen that applied in in remote sensing and how it could be useful as a, I'm going to put art with a huge A, so I'm going to include things like writing and talking to people, like all these things that are not purely on the scientific aspect. Um, right, so there's there's a lot there. Um, I've got some time. <laughs> yeah, I've not updated my blog for a long time. It's terrible. I should do something. Forestplanet.wordpress.com. Just to put that plug in there. Um, I think the art. So the in science, um, if you're at the frontier of something in science, I think creativity is a is a key component of that. You have to be able to think crazy ideas and and look outside of the the norm. There's lots of science that goes on, which is sort of incremental, normal stuff and doesn't necessarily require a huge amount of creativity. But there's other parts of science where I would argue it helps to be able to um, have, a, have a, a creative approach to it. And so I would, um, I would argue that there's, you know, there's, there's an important role in um in working or scientists working with artists just to kind of break their standard mode of thinking so that they, they do other things. I was at an interesting event at COP in Glasgow last year, so not, not this current year's one. Um, and Brian Eno was hosting it. So Brian Eno, the musician, and um, you heard, you, you've not heard of Brian Eno? Does uh, not ring a bell. He, um, significant, um, creative genius in the music world through the 70s and 80s. So the whole ambient music thing is essentially his creation and you would recognize his music. But he um, he was advocating this whole idea and I can't, it's getting back to a food analogy, but he was kind of saying that, uh, that you know, science is really important for that, um, that consumption of the understanding of the world, but the, but the art was important for the, the digestion something like that right is that he he saw that there was a definite um there was a definite need for art and science to work together and and that was partly to do with that creativity but it was also the fact that art helps 
uh, helps people come to terms or, or fully digest what is happening in the science. And this, it was COPs, it was in a climate change context. Um, and there was lots of interesting guests and stuff talking about our science projects in a, in a climate context. It's also the case that one of the, the key things that artists and scientists have in common, especially artists and mathematicians is that, um, or theoretical physicists, I might say, uh, is the power of abstraction. So the idea that one thing represents something else, or the idea that, that I can have something here which represents something in the real world. Um, that's something that artists are always engaged with in terms of that process of how you represent the, the world, whatever it, whether it's a, an experienced and perceived world or whether it's you're trying to represent a real world. But that idea of, of, of understanding it and representing it in some way that can be used in other ways. And that's essentially what, you know, mathematics and science does is that you have X and Y and P and Q, you know, in equations which represent things in the real world. So that idea of abstraction is a, is a key overlap where artists and science, you know, the, the Venn diagrams are definitely overlapping there. And it's, um, so there's lots of, um, I think tools and, and ways to discuss and, um, ways to break down preconceptions. Um, a lot of these things I think are, are important ways in which scientists and artists can work together in, you know, in very constructive, interesting, uh, creative ways. What do you think should be the kind of creative journey or what might've been yours as a scientist or someone who, you know, navigates closer to, to the science aspect? The, the reason I'm asking is that I, I have this sense that for a lot of people who are interested in math and the physics, especially the, the theoretical aspect, but also software engineering, there's very clear path as to how to get better. Like you can take a course, you can learn some of the formulas, you can try to understand the, the equations or the, the software packages that you need. And a lot of the creative aspect, there are better, there are ways to get better at it, but it sometimes feel as if it's a complete different aspect. It's a completely different beast. So I'm curious just if you have maybe advice on, 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 or, or kind of your journey through that. If it's so important, like how do you get better at it? So how, so how I get better at, how do you foster creativity? Basically you're saying, yeah, again, it's kind back, of, it's to, tricky, right? back to the, the problem of, uh, like we talked about SAR, there's the, the, the why, and then there's the how. And so we've, we've gone on, on the why it's important. Now I'm curious at how basically, uh, I think we can we can do a whole other podcast. I think on on you know the the studies that look at how you foster creativity and, and everything else. Um, it's some I guess I I do that through the process of in my classroom, for example, of mixing that up. Right, you know, playing music in the breaks or um, getting people to draw pictures rather than just write stuff. Um, and it's not necessarily an artistic thing. And, they, and the students maybe aren't aware of the fact that I'm trying to, you know, stimulate parts of their brain or just get them to think in different ways by doing that. But that's the kind of mechanisms that I would do in order to, you know, um, to generate that. The, um, and then, you know, more broadly, it's also about, um, it's, it's the art of, um, of linking things together that might not seem uh, ordinarily um, linked. 
and that's maybe is that, is that a learned skill or is that something that it might be something that i just had a natural aptitude to do, do you have an I example do. maybe um something that you could use in the classroom or well i guess i mean even earthblocks is an example of that in terms of 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 you know doing one thing over here and doing another thing over here and then saying actually why don't we just connect these two things together and that'll actually solve my problem and so it's a uh and not necessarily from from areas that you would you would think of so that idea of um you know why not you know why 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 not do that let's you know let's connect these things together and try it out and sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah, you know? of course. And that's where, you know, it's an, it's an interesting thing in terms of watching Twitter just now, right? Is that clearly, you know, Musk is doing exactly that, is that he's trying out lots of stuff and, and lots of stuff will fail and he'll just throw it away and some stuff will, will work and he'll keep it. And meanwhile, it's chaos for the rest of us actually <laughs> trying to use it. But I think that's what he's trying to do is to yeah. just throw, throw ideas at it and brainstorm and we're just the guinea pigs to, to test which things work and which things don't. I'm not advocating that as a method. But that the idea of the 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 general idea of just trying things, like you know, why not? You've written quite a lot as well, and one of the things I I saw that you wrote was a small book of advice for PhD students. Oh yeah, yeah. And so I kind of want to. So there's a lot of really practical advice on. It, it's not just for PhD students. I think there's a lot of advice on. There's some really specific things about how to write your thesis, but there's also some really general things like eating healthy mm -hmm. and exercising and things like that. And so I want to kind of wrap all of that up uh, for people who might be listening, who are students who are kind of starting in their career. What advice would you give them? What advice would you give to people starting out in kind of this field of the whole earth observation thing, but kind of that could apply broader as well uh i think um you know the i think it's on it's on my one of my other blogs actually is my is my uh six guides to success um and and one of the key ones is being lucky right that's one of the things nobody <laughs> nobody writes a book that says oh, i was successful because i was lucky right people write books to say i was successful because i uh i ate this stuff for breakfast and i you know i cycled three miles every afternoon or something to have some bizarre list of things that say these are the you know go through this recipe and you'll be as successful as i am and of course it never works because a lot of it is to do with the individual and it's to do with whether or not they're lucky um i think understanding learning to understand your if understanding yourself and knowing why you're you're going on that path it's one of the things that it mentions at the beginning of the phd books right so it's the same for anything is that why a phd is a little bit different because you're really committing you know, you can start a job and you can leave it within a couple of months if you don't like it. But you start a PhD, there's generally that sense is that you're in it till the end because leaving halfway through is is um, pr probably generally discouraged and seen as a, a bad thing. Shouldn't necessarily be that, but um, but it's probably perceived like that. So so yeah, just the, um, you need to know who you are and where you're where you're going, basically, and then I'd be a bit more. Uh, being kind to being kind is one of the you know the key bits of advice I try to give people, and that's being kind to yourself as well as to others. So you know, don't work weekends if you can avoid it. You know, find some time for yourself. Um, don't get caught up in that, uh, especially in academia where there's a risk that you get sucked into a a rat race that makes people feel they have to be working late in the evening and 
working over the weekends and, and everything else. And even in a PhD, you know, that perception that you've got to be completely 100% into it. It's like um, you probably don't need to be, you know, it's probably less, certainly lots of studies that will show you that you're less effective. But actually making sure that you're, you know, you're taking those times, times out and taking, having a life as well as the thing that you do. Because ultimately, uh, Earth observation is not the most important thing in the world. You know, it's the, um, I think it was Richard Feynman who, who wrote a letter to somebody saying, you know, physics isn't the most important thing in the world. Love is, and it's, it's you know, love and kindness way, rank way higher than earth observation. So not to take it too seriously. Um, so it's, it's, it's generally, you know, it's advice like that, that I'm always going to give people is that you have to, you know, the path that you take for your career, um, and especially these days, your career can change, right? So you can try things out. And if you try Earth observation and it doesn't work for you, then go and do something that does. That sounds like pretty good advice. <laughs> um, I think that's a pretty good way to start wrapping it up as well. Um, and just like I like starting uh, every conversation with the same question, I like finishing with the same question as well. I like to ask people for book and podcasts recommendation. So the reason I do that, uh, there's basically two reasons. The first one is that books and podcasts uh, are pretty hard to come across. Uh, you can go to a bookstore and see new books and you can browse Spotify to see new podcasts. But a lot of it is through word of mouth. Uh, and so I hear about a lot of new things by just asking people. So I do that. And then the second reason is I think it's quite telling on people as to just what are they interested in reading and listening to. So maybe if you have one book and, and one podcast, if you listen to any, it doesn't have to do with anything that we talked about, just something that you read that you think could be valuable for other people to to, to hear about and read. I think uh, there's two books that immediately come to mind. Um, but the um, So one of them is, um, uh, oh, I forgot what it's called now. Um, so I'll come back to that. The most important one is Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Right. Thinking okay. fast and slow, I think, has been the most influential to me in recent times because um, it is, it makes you realize a lot about the way that human beings think. Um, it makes you understand a lot of the flaws in the, a lot of the flaws in the way that people think. And, and being able to reflect on that and, and think, actually, I probably make some of those mistakes too. Is really useful. Um, I think it also makes you understand um, how other factors influence decisions that are maybe made in your life. So a classic one in an academic context is why does my grant not get funded? And you know, more often than not, it probably didn't get funded because you were unlucky and it just didn't. You know, in that random shuffle of it being reviewed by a panel of so-called experts. Um, I say so-called because they're experts in their field, but they're not experts in judging whether or not this grant is going to be a success or not. Because no grant panel ever that I've ever come across actually goes back and looks at the the rankings that they gave the grant applications and then compares that to the rankings of the quality of the outputs afterwards. So the, if and if you don't have any feedback, right, you you can't be an expert in making a decision on which one of these is best. Right, so that's a classic one in in thinking fast and slow. That idea that feedback is is a vital process to that learning process, um, and so it's it's things like that that you that that book is really good at um, making you think about these processes and understanding a little bit more about 
the way that individual thinking and collective thinking can be flawed and how that links into what you're um what you whatever it is you're doing whether it's in an academia or or business context or in fact a life context um i remember the other one it's never never split the difference um do you know that book do you right uh so i'm not supposed to give two books but that's that's I, all right. I, I like that one. And one of the one of the, the the things it was very practical and it had very clear. So it's a book about an, a former FBI hostage negotiator talking about how to do negotiation. Um, and one of the interesting things I remember from it is not to ask um, that, that why is an antagonistic question. And I thought that's really an interesting idea. You can actually apply that to just about every conversation you have with people. Is that asking them why is is confrontational, and 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 elicits a a defensive response. And so even just taking away that little nugget that, you know, trying to avoid using why in conversations is something that I've, I've tried to take from that. Um, podcasts. Um, ah, that's a difficult one because I don't, I don't actually listen to a lot of podcasts. And when I do listen to podcasts, you know, I put them on two times. I listen to your podcast, obviously. Um, yeah, that, or that you're not going to tell one. me. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm not. And I, uh, but I guess I, I can't recommend that one. But the podcast, so the podcast I would I would encourage people to go to is is things like the the uh, HBR, so the Harvard Business Review, or um, the the uh, the the business ones that they have in Radio Four, right? So I'm I'm not going to pick out a specific one, but uh, but I, and I do that not because of from a business perspective, but because you will you will get a different perspective in a lot of these things that are maybe not what you took. You take some things for granted that's, that, that a lot of these business podcasts actually, you know, challenge and make you think about. And that's why, so rather than an Earth Observation or a GI podcast, other than your own, obviously, is that um, that's where I would tend to, to point people um, because you'll get a different perspective and they're not talking about Earth Observation or satellites and everything else. They're talking about completely different things. Back to the idea of trying to take something from another field and bringing it back. Exactly. That's, you know, that's what I tend to do. Ian, thank you very much. This was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, thanks Thanks a lot for your time. Um, I'll put links to the show notes to all the things we talked about. Your book, of course, some of the courses that you've had, uh, Earthblocks, all those things. So yeah, again, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for, I just want to reiterate that, all the, the teaching that you put out there for people to uh, listen to and to watch. It's helped me a lot. And yeah, I'm very thankful. <laughs>